This is Dennis Mundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, uh, Mr. Richard Geldart. He is a writer and lecturer living in New York City. His latest book, The Magdalene Gates, uh, a novella. Uh, he has studied at Bowdoin College, uh, Middlebury College, Stanford University, and Oxford. Also uh, expertise in Ralph Waldo Emerson. Thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today, Richard. Pleasure is all mine. Richard, um, I came across your uh, work <clears throat> when I was researching American Veda and um, the transcendentalist's contribution to that story. Uh, before we get into your uh, new book, Magdalene Ga- The Magdalene Gates, We'd like to talk a bit about uh, Emerson, especially, and the Transcendentalists uh, and their influence on the culture. Uh, and and I should note that uh, it's very auspicious. We're recording this uh, today on uh, July 12th, and that happens to be the birthday of Henry David Thoreau. Indeed. <laughs> so tell us how you uh, came to be interested in, in the Transcendentalists and Emerson in particular and um, why he looms uh, so large in American spiritual history. Well, let's see. I, I started off in terms of college uh, in a fairly traditional manner. My father was a church organist, so I moved from one Protestant church to another, wherever he was needed. He was also a chemist. Um, And once I got off to college and on my own and then hit graduate school, I ran into uh, a rather remarkable professor um, who handed a paper back to me at one point in my graduate studies um, and there was a note on it that said, very Emersonian. Hmm. I went back to him, and, and I said, Bill, uh, what do you mean by Emersonian? He said, well, it's actually there are sort of transcendental e- echoes in it. I, uh, you might want to explore that. And since I had time and, fo- and was able to focus on it, and there were also people at Stanford who... Uh, were really good in the area, I began to be interested. And then afterwards, um, I taught for about 10 years uh, in California, and then I got a very nice job uh, as an administrator and teacher at the Collegiate School in New York City. Collegiate is the oldest school in America founded by Peter Stuyvesant back in 16... 16- 38, and still going strong. And there I met some very interesting people, one of whom uh, I later married, and she was going to the School of Philosophy, which was over on the east side. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started there. After three or four years, I was given an opportunity to be on the faculty, and um. They asked me if, please, would you teach a early morning course on Wednesday at 6.30 uh, on Emerson? And I said, sure. And we started. 
And as it turned out, uh, after 30 minutes of meditation, we took one paragraph uh, from an Emerson essay and for the next hour worked with it. And that kind of detail, that kind of focus with Mm -hmm. about a dozen people in the room all contributing out of a discipline of spiritual work uh, began to uh, really, really get me going in terms of that study. And uh, so I began to work more uh, personally, privately, and um, attracted some publishing and started to to uh, to explore a particular area in Emerson. Uh, one of the things I discovered is that when Emerson began an essay, he always began with a a solid statement. Um, that framed the entire essay. For example, um, the first book, Essays One, which he published after Nature, started with the essay History. And the sentence that begins it is, there is one mind common to all individual men, Mm. period. And then he develops that. And what I recognized from my study at the philosophy school is that this was Vedic in its source. And um, it turns out that Emerson, who began at Harvard when he was 14 years old, always had a copy of the Bhagavad Gita under his desk and studied it and kept it with him all of his life. Right. And uh, so Richard, if, if, I could, if I could interrupt for a second, I'm curious. Sure. When, when, you, when you began to study Emerson, when you, uh, what were your spiritual in- inclinations at that time? And in studying him, uh, did your spiritual inclinations or practices change? Or were they, how were they affected by the study of him? Right. Well, um, because of the influence of my wife, who also taught uh, Sanskrit, um, my focus was on Advaita Vedanta, the non-dual area that was brought into the West by the Shankarya in the 8th, 8th century AD um, and began to influence uh, the Mediterranean basin, the interchange of philosophies. And so... Uh, I recognized the Vedanta influence in Emerson mm-hmm. in ways that other writers of Emerson did not. I used to have interesting conversation with Bob Richardson on the subject. And Bob is married uh, to Annie Dillard, who did have uh, some background in Vedanta, and she picked it up as well. Mm. And um, so what what took place is that I began to realize that Emerson's transcendentalism um, was hiding his Vedic background. He didn't dare 
come out and start talking about uh, Indian philosophy, not in the early 19th century. Um, it didn't play. So what he did was he found the Vedic influences in Plato, and later, 500 years later, in Plotinus, um, and began to use that material. And essentially, that um, carried over uh, to what we now call the perennial philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you're familiar yeah. both yep. uh, with, with that body of work. And that's come down to us from the, the Vedic the Upanishads, which go way back three, 4,000 B.C., E. And what we uh, uh, are left with, essentially, is all of the manifestations of this notion of consciousness, uh, the one mind, nous in the Greek. And when I argue this with my friends De Quincey and Gaswami, I, I find us not quite on the same page. They are being more panpsychists. And uh, I, I guess, take a more extreme position in feeling that I agree with Emerson's assertion that, in fact, consciousness is the ground state of the universe. Mm-hmm. And I think all of the work in quantum physics and so on has begun to... Uh, frighten the physicists into that position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but let, let me, um, I, if I could just ask one one other question sure. for and then turn it over. Uh, did that come from your understanding of what was going on in physics, making those connections, or is there anything experiential, subjective from your side that gave you confidence that consciousness was underlying uh, uh, the unifier well, of the universe, or however you want to put it? I am... I am of such an age that um, uh, during the 60s, uh, um, I, I started at Stanford in 1968, and and those of us there who were interested in just intellectual pursuits in different areas um, discovered the, the books that were coming out about quantum physics. And... Um, that became, you know, the great paperback bestsellers of, of the time. And so, um, and I took like a few... Like the Tao of physics? Those the Tao of physics, yeah. of course, was right. was primary, um, which influenced people at the Esalen Institute very strongly mm-hmm. um, and began that a whole series mm-hmm. there. Um, and then... Uh, as things moved along, I don't know if you know Richard Tarnas, mm-hmm. um, who is at the California Institute of Integral Studies, mm-hmm. and Richard wrote the brilliant, absolutely brilliant, uh, The Passion of the Western Mind. And that book actually, um, my memory, I think, is correct in saying that if you look at the paperback of that in the first 80 pages, uh, his dedication to the notion of 
of cosmic consciousness uh, really inspired his very best writing, um, which led me to believe that that was really what he believes. And if you go on to um, YouTube and watch his lectures, you can see that that's where he is. Richard, uh, about Emerson, um, two questions uh, sure. before we segue to your new book. Um, <clears throat> I always think of Emerson as sort of the founding father of the spiritual but not religious phenomenon in a way. Yeah. And, and his famous um, lecture at Harvard Divinity School, which I recommend all of our listeners get Google, was a kind of uh, landmark event in American spirituality. I'm curious if you agree. And the other question is, uh, one of your books is called Emerson and the Dream of America. And I'd love you to reflect on uh, the importance of uh, sort of Emersonian thinking and uh, to where we are today as a, as a culture. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, the... Um, the lecture that Emerson gave to the graduating class, uh, I think it was 1838 or 6, one, one or the other, um, in that small chapel to the six graduating seniors that year from the uh, Divinity School, um, I actually gave the lecture from the same podium in the same room, wow. and which was a great thrill. Um, to a slightly larger audience, actually. <laughs> I mean, 35 people instead of 25 people. But at any rate, um, he allowed that to be published, and he knew perfectly well what it was going to do. He knew um, that he was taking the Unitarians down a road that they were inclined to go, but too fearful to go. And... He um, then, soon thereafter, uh, left the church, as you know, uh, and decided to lecture um, without the trappings and robes of the minister. And he lectured for the next 60 years all over America and became probably uh, the most uh, admired and devoted uh, lecturer away from religion as this country has seen and i i believe very strongly that we have this independent streak in us mm -hmm. i mean people are leaving churches as we know in droves uh the last 20 years and that's not going to stop and churches are being converted into art studios and community centers um so I, I do believe that um, my view is what I call the inner teacher. Um, the teacher we're looking for is inside us. And if you look at the extraordinary beginning sentence, again, uh, in this case of spiritual laws, Emerson says, when the act of reflection takes place in the mind, we can look at ourselves in the light of thought. And that sentence, which 
our little group in New York mulled over for a long time, so I can't claim personal insight of it. But the import of that is that if we settle the mind into quiet and allow, quote, the act of reflection to take place in the mind, which means not, I'm going to sit down and think about this. No, the ego does not get involved here. And so the trick about the inner teaching is that there is another voice there that is not the ego. And the great conflict in this whole aspect of work, spiritual work, is is separating that. And Carl Jung is brilliant on that on that struggle. Um, but the the point being that if we see that that reflection enters the mind, we can then in the light of thought, clear thought, um, begin to question and and focus on on what we should be doing rather than what we're driven to do, and find that center, find that spiritual center that is there. It's right. present. There's R- the R- silence R- within. Yeah. R- Richard, did that so, line, did that line of thinking? Uh, lead you to your writing your latest book, uh, The Magdalene Gates. Well, let me just let me just make a comment about um, the America, the Emerson in America book, which I wrote out of the exultation of the uh, Obama election in two thousand and eight, thinking that that he was a moment in which this country might turn a corner. Um, And I think we partly did. Um, Of course, it's been shattered at the present moment and we're, we're in deep trouble, but, but I think we'll come out of it because the impulse of that eight years is there. And I also think just as a political note that the reason we like Biden more than anybody right now is that, I think people think that maybe he some of that might have rubbed off, but we'll see. I mean, that's another issue. But but what I wanted to see happen was the idea, um, because Barack Obama was also a great Emerson fan and wrote very well on Emerson, mm. and um, and I felt that somehow that was going to. Uh, enter the marketplace. Um, but then um, I had a sense uh, in my teaching um, uh, at the uh, Holmes Institute in, uh, in L.A. and in Colorado and also uh, the University of Philosophical Research where I studied until it is no more, um, I was asked to teach a course in the Hermeticum, and so I did a lot of research on uh, Alexandria in the period um, it included Hypatia and and the uh, incredible 
work being done in Coptic uh, philosophy and, and Neoplatonism. And Mary Magdalene came up in the, in the process, and when I discovered her gospel of Mary in the Nag Hammadi, Hammadi materials and saw the gaps, the very significant gaps in that essay, or series of scrolls, I grew suspicious that the early church fathers were uh, censoring her. And I started to do a couple of years of research, and there were people uh, mostly associated and connected to the church who approached that subject and then backed off and didn't really address it. And I decided at one point in a moment of glorious ego that I was going to break it wide open. And, of course, then I backed off because I thought about it. <laughs> and, uh, and I realized that I didn't have any right to do that. I didn't have any right to say that the church fathers had, had uh, scrubbed um, Jesus saying to Mary, please don't allow a religion to be born in my name. And Mary said, I'll try. Mm. Uh, which is, personally, I believe what he said. Um, because is that, is that something um, that can be documented? No, it cannot. Oh, okay. That's the point. It cannot. Which hence resulted for me in having to do it as a novel. Ah, I was going to ask so that why I a was novel. allowed in fiction to make up material that filled those gaps. And also at the same time, um, took a shot at Brown's uh, novel, <laughs> the, the Da Vinci Code. Right. Uh, which was a gross exaggeration and and imaginative uh, party. Um, In terms of um, the uh, knowable content of uh, the Mag Mary Magdalene story, um, maybe you could fill us in. From what I know, certain documents were found, um, I guess, um, from that finding in in uh in the middle Not east Hamadi. yeah and um there turns out to have been something uh called that people call the the, the gospel of mary um what did that reveal to you when in when you read it about the jesus story and the the era that it took place well, first, first of all, a couple of details. The, the Gospel of Mary was first found in 1895 in Alexandria by a German uh, philosopher, archaeologist, who took it, who bought it, and took it back to Berlin, translated it into Germany, German, and start, started working on it. Um, 
nothing ever appeared in any other language except the Coptic and the German, so n nobody knew anything about it. He didn't share it, share it with anybody. So then when the Nag Hammadi materials were found, which did not include that gospel, they did, they add, they, he stepped forward or, or subsequent people stepped forward from Germany and it was included in Nag Hammadi materials when it was published in English and then studied by scholars for 10 years before anybody in the public saw it. And then finally, finally, um, in the uh, 70s, it came out um, with all kinds of responses and so on. Um, speculations by all sorts of people, defenses back and forth. But what said, what spoke to me was that Mary Magdalene was in those original documents called the disciple to the disciples. In that, she was not the penitent whore. She was not one of the other Marys, of which there are three in the Gospels. Um, she was put, the church fathers wanted her to be the penitent whore so that women, bless their sinning hearts, they thought, uh, would pray to her because they didn't dare pray to the Virgin Mary who was too perfect and wouldn't understand uh, their pleas for forgiveness. R Richard, so Richard Mary I Magdalene was engaged in that enterprise. Right. And when I was in Ephesus and the, the grave of the seven sleepers was all fenced off, in the fences were these little white slips of sheet on which were written prayers uh, in Turkish um, for forgiveness and please um, my husband wants a baby uh, and um, I'm resisting please forgive me you know all that's personal stuff right. and that was the role that Mary Magdalene played but she was in fact, uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say the wife of Jesus, but certainly they were intimate. Certainly she was absolutely devoted. Certainly the male uh, figures, and particularly Peter, were very jealous of her. Right. And hey, Richard, Richard we're gonna, we, have about right? two, we have about two or three minutes left. So we have to wrap it okay. up, but it's amazing okay, stuff, so and I'm sure I'm sure uh, highly controversial amongst some. But uh, uh, if you could wrap it up in the next two or three minutes, sure. Um, so at any rate, the reason I wrote the novel was that I could make make it. I could make up the material that fits inside uh, those gaps. This mm -hmm. is what I did, but mostly what I was doing with the gates, the idea of moving from stages of growth to another, which are very common in most spiritual work. 
and we can go all the way back to the journey of the hero and so on, but it is true that we go through a series of stages in maturity. Um, and in those stages, which Tonio, the hero of the novel, who is, who is me, I went through those stages myself, and I am very familiar with every place in that book as a graduate student studying in, mm-hmm. in Greece. So, um, and in Turkey and in Crete. So I'm very, it was a very personal document. And um, there is a website called uh, themagdalengates.org, which invites people to um, enter on the journey and take part and go through stages uh, recognizing that they are their best teacher. Um, we'll have all that ad posted up, actually, all the, uh, the, not only the book title, but those websites. Phil, any final points? Yeah, the, the no. Uh, did you want to make a final point, Richard? Um, I just want to say thank you for uh, allowing me to share this information, and I hope that it uh, um, not only creates an interest in the book, but also an interest in this idea of the role of consciousness in our in our personal uh, journey toward uh, spirit. Good, great, great good way stuff, to end. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much for taking the time. Thanks for all your good books and, and contribution to the field. And uh, look forward to uh, seeing what our readers, our listeners think of the Magdalene Gates. Well, I, just lastly, I'd like to say that a lot of this credit right now goes to Mirabai Star. Oh, yeah. on your program three times, as right. I recall. That's right. right. And... Um, she was the one that gave me that blurb on the back of the book. Um, yes, we yeah, did. I read, noticed that, so. which uh, blew my mind. <laughs> uh, and so I thanked her so profusely, and she said, I wish I could have said what I really felt. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. That, that and uh, you, you couldn't ask for a better endorsement. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you, Richard. Okay, guys, thank, thanks. It was fun. Bye.